Hello, this is William Fink of Christagonia.org, and this is Christagonia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 24th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part three of our presentation of the prophecy of Zechariah, and this is subtitled, The House of God. Having presented the first three chapters of Zechariah, we hope to have established the fact that there are two perspectives to fully interpreting the words of the prophet and realizing the fulfillment of his prophecy. These we have termed the near vision, which is the immediate application of his prophecy to the rebuilding of the second temple and the initiation of the 70 weeks kingdom and the far vision, or the transcendental fulfillment of the prophecy, in the birth of Christ, and ministry of the Christ, and the building of his house, which is both his temporal body, and the body of his collective people, Israel, the body of Christ. We would also assert that the entire purpose of the 70 weeks kingdom was to realize the fulfillment of the far vision as the word of God establishes for us both here and in Daniel chapter 9 quite explicitly. Now in Zechariah chapter 4 Zerubbabel and I've heard several pronunciations of that but I will say Zerubbabel the governor of Jerusalem, during the building of the second temple, and the high priesthood of Joshua, or Jeshua in the book of Nehemiah, is only mentioned several times. His name means sown in Babel, or Babylon, and that is important in relation to what we hope to demonstrate is the meaning of this chapter, especially since the Hebrew word Babel or Babel also means confusion and more specifically confusion by mixing. This in itself is a prophecy of ancient Judea, the birth of Christ and the modern understanding of the origins of both the gospel and the people of Christ. Our redemption was sown in confusion. On a personal note, not concerning me, but concerning Zerubbabel. On a personal note, while Zerubbabel was the rightful heir to the throne of David, he could never himself sit as king because of the curse of Jeconiah found in Jeremiah chapter 32, where it says, Write ye this man childless. That doesn't mean that he was necessarily without children. It was an analogy that his children would not inherit what was rightfully theirs. Write ye this man childless. A man shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed, so he would have seed, shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Zerubbabel was also an ancestor of Christ according to both genealogies. However, Christ is not affected by the curse of Jeconiah, 
since he inherits the throne of David as an adopted son of Joseph of Nazareth, who was apparently the last living heir to the throne. The wicked king, Jeconiah, was the grandfather of this Zerubbabel. Where in Zechariah chapter 3, the historical Joshua, or Jeshua in the book of Nehemiah, Joshua the high priest, was a type for Christ, as he who would make a propitiation for his people. Here in Zechariah chapter 4, the historical Zerubbabel is a type for Joshua Christ, as the rightful judge of his people, in a small degree, but to a larger degree, as a type for Christ, as the builder of his house, which is the body of Christ found in the children of Israel being reconciled to Yahweh their God. As Paul explained in Hebrews, Yahshua Christ is he who built the house. So Paul said that he who built the house is more worthy of than Moses was as a servant of God. We will see that while the near version, the, the I'm sorry, the near vision concerns the building of the house in the form of the second temple in Jerusalem, the far vision concerns the building of the house in the form of the body of Christ in the captivity. So the near vision is temporary and the far vision is eternal. That being said, here we shall begin to present Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. And the prophet uses the illustration to express the dismay of someone who is awoken abruptly. This description also assures us that this vision is distinct from that which the prophet was given in the earlier portions of his writing. And said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. The description fits that of the traditional candelabra, which was the part of the implements of the temple of Solomon. It was it dates back to the tabernacle in the wilderness. The branched candlestick holding seven candles, which is described in Exodus chapter 25. In the revelation of Yahshua Christ, it is the Ancient of Days, Yahshua Christ himself, who holds seven stars in his right hand, and has the seven candlesticks, or lampstands, as they're called in the King James Version, which are equated with the seven churches, for whom he had seven messages. In Revelation chapter 1 we read of the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are 
the seven churches. The pipes here are not musical pipes. Rather, they only seem to be tubes which hold the wicks that feed the oil which keep the candles burning. And Brenton's version of the Septuagint in the, from the Greek calls them funnels. The candlesticks representing these particular Christian assemblies. Stars also convey light through the night sky from heaven to earth. And therefore, the truth of God is portrayed as a light from heaven to the Christian world. The messages which Christ had borne to the seven assemblies. So long as the Christian assemblies keep the truth of God, they burn like candles. So Christ is recorded as having said in Luke chapter 11, No man, when he has lighted a candle, put it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. And of course he was speaking of himself. He was lighting those candles. The vision continues. And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered, and spoke to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my lord? Small L, Lord, right? The two olive trees are mentioned again in Revelation chapter 11, of the two witnesses standing before the Lord of the whole earth. These two witnesses seem to be Israel and Judah, collectively. However, where Zechariah asks, what are these here? It is not yet in relation to the two olive trees. That question comes in verse 11. Therefore, Zechariah's question here must be in relation to the candlestick with the seven lamps. The ultimate answer seems to lie in the rhetorical question, Who art thou, O great mountain? which we won't see until verse 7. The mountain seems to describe Zion, the people of God, as we shall hopefully elucidate. In the meantime, verse 5. Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of Yahweh unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith Yahweh of hosts. The work of Zerubbabel was not completed under force of arms or the might of men, but by the favor and will of God, effected through the Persians. This also reflects the spirit of the Revelation where seven times, with each message to each of the seven churches, we read, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Where these symbols described by Zechariah here were repeated in the words of Christ, and from a Christian perspective, then we see that Zechariah was a Christian prophet, as all the prophets were Christians, they must have been Christians. They had their hope in the Christ, of whom they prophesied. That makes them Christians, regardless of the lies of the Jews. One aspect of the marvel of the prophets is this. 
in many ways, it is evident that the prophets themselves had no concept of the meanings of the words which they recorded. However, once the images they present in their words have been made manifest in history, they can be understood. But the answer to Zechariah's question in verse 4 has not yet been answered in verses 5 and 6, so it must follow here in verse 7 with a rhetorical question. Who art thou, O great mountain? Of course God knows who it is. Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. In the immediate context, this is a prophecy that Zerubbabel will prevail in his immediate task by the Spirit of God, which is the rebuilding of the temple and the establishment of the 70 weeks kingdom at Jerusalem. So the mountain represents the apparent obstacles to the completion of his task, and it is made smooth, meaning that Zerubbabel will complete the building of the house of God without difficulty by the power of the Spirit of Yahweh. This is one hope in Christ that Christians often overlook, which is expressed in the words of John the Baptist, recorded in Luke chapter 3. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. When the undertakings of men are in agreement with the word of God, the obstacles are removed. When the obstacles are many and insurmountable, our failure is the way by which God ultimately leads us in the direction that he wants us to go. But here there is also a transcendental fulfillment, which is of even greater import. The mountain represents, when Zechariah asked what these, that this candlestick with the seven lamps was, the mountain represents the candlesticks with the seven lamps, as this is the answer to the question in verse 4 where the prophet had asked, What are these, my lord? The question is answered rhetorically here. But the final answer must lie in the revelation of Christ, which explains these symbols for us. That the seven lamps are the seven churches, or assemblies of God's people, which were used as examples in the revelation. Of course, there were more assemblies of God's people than merely seven. The great mountain is Zion, which is the seven lamps, which are the people of Christ. And before Christ, the mountain shall be leveled smooth, as it says in Luke, which in turn was a citation of Isaiah chapter 40. The mountain being made smooth means that it would be made humble, clearing the way for Christ. The headstone thereof is Christ himself. He being the chief cornerstone 
So as we shall continue to see, Zerubbabel is a type for Christ building his own house in the purpose of the 70 weeks kingdom and the reconciliation of Israel. That is why when the headstone is brought forth, an announcement of grace is made, as it says here in Zechariah. Grace for Israel being the vehicle through which the reconciliation of Israel in Christ is made possible. As it says in Jeremiah chapter 30, Thus saith Yahweh, The people which were left to the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Here we shall see that same thing, that Israel is going to receive their grace in the place of their captivity. The Septuagint reads this verse quite differently. Where Breton's English is, Who art thou? The great mountain before Zorobabel, that thou shouldest prosper. Whereas I will bring out the stone of the inheritance, the grace of it, the equal of my grace. And if we had to interpret this, we would still imagine the stone, the mountain, I'm sorry, to be Zion, referring to the people of God. But perhaps the stone in this context, with this wording, I will bring the, out the stone of the inheritance. Perhaps the stone should be a reference to the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, which describes the remnant portion of Israel chosen by Yahweh to become a great mountain that would fill the whole earth, described in Daniel 2.35. So the interpretation of the passage as it stands in the Septuagint would necessarily have to be somewhat different. The vision is supplemented in verse 8. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me unto you. And this also has both a near and a far fulfillment. Zerubbabel shall finish the building of the second temple, and by that Zechariah will know that the visions which are given to him by the angel are indeed from Yahweh his God. And to note this here is important in reference to certain things that are said later. However, not only was Zerubbabel commissioned with the building of the second temple, he was also an ancestor of Christ himself, according to the genealogies of both Matthew and Luke, where in the King James Version he is called Zorobabel. Now, of course, we know that Yahshua Christ was actually fathered by Yahweh God in the Spirit. But Zorobabel is there to hand down the legitimate rights to the title of king, all the way to the stepfather of Christ, Joseph of Nazareth. So Zerubbabel is not only laying the foundations of the second temple building, his presence in Jerusalem is also laying the foundations for the advent of Christ in the flesh, 
who is of the seed and of the house of David, and who is both the root and the branch of Jesse. Christ is the branch mentioned in chapter 3, in the vision related here to Joshua the high priest. And that branch will be mentioned again at the end of this series of visions, which is in Zechariah chapter 6. Christ manifest in the flesh is the true house of Yahweh, made without hands, the true temple. Moreover, Zerubbabel means sown in Babel, or Babylon, and we shall see that the house being built is also going to be built in Babylon, at least allegorically. And here, in that sense, Babylon represents the captivity of Israel, where Israel is to be judged. And in that very sense, the prophecy continues. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of Yahweh, which run to and fro through the whole earth. The Septuagint has only small days rather than day of small things. And rather than with those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. The Septuagint only has, these are the seven eyes that look upon all the earth. But the resulting meaning is not much different once the description of the seven eyes is compared to a similar term which appears in Revelation chapter 5. And as it was also used in Zechariah chapter 3, of the stone laid before Joshua the high priest. The seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The plummet is a leveling, a leveling tool, which represents the judgment of Yahweh as it does in Isaiah chapter 18, where Yahweh had said, Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And then it goes on to say, that the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. So while in the near vision, the plummet is a necessary tool for building, so that Zerubbabel may complete the task he is given, in the transcendental fulfillment, it represents the righteous judgment upon of Yahweh upon his people Israel. Where it asks, For who has despised the day of small things? We seem to have a reference to those who would understand the present period of the punishment of the children of Israel and esteem it as nothing in the overall plan of God. This fulfillment in the short term was in the 70-year period of captivity in Babylon before the second temple was rebuilt. I should call that the 70-year period in which Jerusalem was to lie in shambles, in rubble. So the day of small things seems to be an allegory for the period of Israel's chastisement first the 70 years that the temple they destroyed and then in the far vision 
the overall chastisement and punishment of the children of Israel. And those who trust in Yahweh shall patiently await the great things to come. It is for this same reason that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, long after those 70 years were expired, which proves that this is indeed a dual vision, just like the rest of Zechariah. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Notice that he compared our light affliction, which is but for a moment, speaking of the present time, to a weight of glory. Because later on, the judgment of Yahweh will be compared to a weight of lead. The reference to those seven is a reference to the foundation stone of the house of God, which is Yahshua Christ himself. He was the branch of Zechariah chapter 3, and the stone laid before Joshua the high priest, where it says, For behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. That's not three and a half people looking at it. That's eyes symbolically contained in the stone. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Jeshua the high priest in the days of Zerubbabel could not remove the iniquity in a day. Paul contrasted the propitiation of the Levitical high priests to the propitiation in Christ in Hebrews chapter 9. And he said, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters into the holy place every year, with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Meaning that all the iniquity would be removed in a day. So the stone with seven eyes must be a reference to Yahshua Christ himself. In both Zechariah chapter 3 and here in Zechariah chapter 4. The seven eyes must be a description of the same seven spirits of God mentioned in relation to Christ in Revelation chapter 5. And I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slayed having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And the plummet represents the judgment of Christ upon the house of Israel. Finally, Zechariah asks of the two olive trees, in the vision of the candlestick, Then answered I, and said unto him, what are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick, and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again, and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes emptied the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by Yahweh of the whole earth, or the Lord of the whole earth. The one answer describes both the olive trees and the branches of those trees, 
which feed their oil into the lamps, and in turn which would keep the lamps burning. Here the description of the pipes supports our interpretation of the pipes for each of the seven lamps mentioned earlier, that they feed oil into the lamps through their wicks. Here the imagery is a little clearer in the Septuagint. The two branches belong to each of the olive trees, and the oil from the olive trees actually feeds the seven lamps and keeps them burning. The anointed ones must represent the house of Israel and the house of Judah, as the Apostle John speaks to his readers of the anointing which you have received of him in reference to Christ at 1 John 2.27. This anointing is also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 10, where there is a promise to the children of Israel that the yoke of the Assyrian upon the neck of Israel shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Collectively, the children of Israel and the children of Judah are the anointed of God. Thus, Paul also speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. The two olive trees being Israel and Judah, and the seven lamps being interpreted as the future seven churches of the Revelation we see a symbol of the substance of the seven churches addressed by Christ, the Christian assemblies, which must also be of Israel and Judah. In other words, the olive trees being Israel and Judah, the oil from them feeds the lamps, which is represented, I'm sorry, which represent the seven assemblies of God in the Revelation. So the Olive trees represent Israel and Judah collectively, and the assemblies of God are derived from them. There's no other tubes going to those lampstands. In our commentary, no tubes from myrtle trees, fig trees, or sagebrush going into those lampstands. In our commentary on the revelation of Yahshua Christ for chapter 11, we had explained that the two witnesses which lay dead in the streets for 42 months were representative of events which took place during the Reformation, determining whether the children of Israel would be able to break free of the tyranny of the papacy, the second beast of the Revelation. So it says in verse 4 of that chapter, of those two witnesses, Israel and Judah, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. With this we shall commence with Zechariah chapter 5. Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked and behold a flying roll. Here and in verse 2 where the flying roll is mentioned again the Septuagint has a sickle or a pruning hook rather than a roll or a scroll. We will not elaborate on a possible alternate interpretation. We don't think it really matters. This portion of the text is wanting in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the context directs us in one way towards the reading of the Masoretic text, and in another way towards that which is found in the Septuagint. And we will explain that. Either way, the ultimate interpretation would not be much different. In the Revelation, 
A pruning hook or sickle is also a device by which judgment is executed, the judgment of God, the angel with the sickle, reaping the earth. We dislike even having to even having to address it here, but we feel that we must. This flying roll thing. Too many childish assertions have been circulating, claiming that this is some sort of prophecy of missiles or some other actual flying objects. It's our opinion that perhaps a flying bagel would be more appropriate. This verse is a signal example of how easily certain people are fascinated by ideas which are refuted once a larger portion of the scripture is examined. All too frequently, they instead become captivated by the lies which are created when a verse is lifted from scripture and interpreted apart from its own context. In that manner, a verse can be imagined to support some fable which is actually far removed from the original intent of the writer. Here, Zechariah does not intend to describe a missile. The word for roll is megawa, and it refers to a scroll, the, I'm sorry, the roll of a book, and it appears a dozen times in Jeremiah chapter 36, alone and by itself, as a scroll of writing. I'm sorry. My notes are um, wanting some editing. The word appears alone by itself or with the phrase roll of a book. So sometimes in Jeremiah chapter 36 it's just a roll and sometimes it's the roll of a book so we know what it is. It's a parchment that's been rolled up and, and usually they're tied for transportation and storage. Sometimes when they're official parchments, they're sealed so that only the intended receiver can open it legitimately. In the very next verse, the flying roll or scroll is described as the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. And therefore, it must be an allegory for the curses of disobedience written in the law which Yahweh had promised would come upon the children of Israel if they did not keep his law. Now, in the time of Zechariah, those same Israelites had been scattered over the face of the whole earth, where we are told that the curse would be sent. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I answered, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is twenty cubits, and the breadth thereof, ten cubits. And quite interestingly, or even profoundly, the breadth and length of the scroll, or perhaps sickle, but this would be an awfully weird looking sickle in the reading of the Septuagint. The dimensions are the same in the Septuagint, right? The breadth and length of the scroll are of the same dimensions as the porch of Solomon's temple, which was before the altar where the propitiations for sin were made for the children of Israel. This is evident in 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 3 and 2 Chronicles chapter 8 verse 12. So by this we may proceed 
that the scroll is indeed related to the judgment of God against the sins of the children of Israel. Then he said unto me, verse 3, Zechariah chapter 5, Then he said unto me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that steals shall be cut off, as on this side according to it. And everyone that swears shall be cut off, as on that side according to it. And it's not talking about common stealing and saying bad words. (laughs) On the surface here, the Septuagint reading of sickle may seem to make more sense as a blade passes through the stalks and they fall off on one side or the other. But alternately, the reference to each side of the object may be a reference to parts of the law written on each side of a scroll. The curses of disobedience are written into the law in two places. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26. Even with the promised mercy of Christ, the children of Israel cannot escape the prophesied period of punishment during which they were to suffer for their sins and experience those curses of disobedience. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 46, and this is basically repeated Or, I'm sorry, this is basically a repeat of nearly the same identical statement in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. In Jeremiah chapter 46, the word of Yahweh says, Fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. Here in Zechariah, we have an announcement of that punishment. A different announcement. And likewise, in Amos chapter 3, it says, You only have I known of all the families on the earth. Therefore will I punish you for all your iniquities. But the reference to stealing cannot be limited in scope to the mere commandment which says, Thou shalt not steal, which seems to be the least of the sins of the children of Israel, arguably. Rather, there is a greater theft in the disobedience of Israel, for which the Israelites are also described as being cursed, as it is recorded in Malachi chapter 3, for common stealing If you get caught, you have to pay back maybe two, three, four times what you stole, but you're not cursed for it. For this kind of stealing, you are cursed. And it says in Malachi chapter 3, For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, they would not be destroyed for their sin, because of the promises to Abraham. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith Yahweh of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? And then in verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. That's the kind of stealing Yahweh talks about here in Zechariah. Yet you have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? 
And the answer is, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So the children of Israel have stolen from their God, and they swear by the name of their God in vain. That's the kind of swearing we're, we're, we're addressing here, that Zechariah is expressing here. When they swear by the name of their God in vain. Among other places, this is described in Isaiah chapter 52, where it speaks rhetorically of the children of Israel in captivity. And it says, For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, speaking of the first captivity. And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause, speaking of the last captivity. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them, make them to howl, saith Yahweh. And my name continually, every day is blasphemed. And similarly, it says in Isaiah chapter 48, Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of Yahweh, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. So Yahweh promises judgment for these great sins of stealing from and blaspheming him. And it says in verse 4, I will bring it forth, these curses that are spoken about. I will bring it forth, saith Yahweh of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, those who steal from God, and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. That's what swearing is in this context. And it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it, the role of the law, the witness against us, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. The flying roll must represent the curses written in the law, even if it's a flying sickle. And therefore, the judgment of Yahweh will rest upon sinners until their houses are destroyed or until they repent. It speaks in the same manner of the children of the captivity in Ezekiel chapter 18. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he has committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he has committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked, meaning the wicked among the children of Israel, speaking of Israel in the captivity, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith Yahweh God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. You could only return to God if you were there in the first place. Zechariah then describes yet another vision. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth 
And I said, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goes forth. He said, moreover, this is their, that's important, that plural pronoun, this is their resemblance through all the earth. <laughs> an ephah, excuse me, an ephah is a unit of measure approximately the size of a bushel or about nine gallons, or 35 liters. Here the word ephah refers to the device for measuring the unit, which could be a basket. Since the ephah was generally a dry measure, often used of grain. The reading for ephah in the Septuagint is simply measure throughout the passage. Where the angel says, this is their resemblance. He seems to be indicating further that the visions which preceded do indeed describe the children of Israel in captivity for their sins, and here he is about to describe them again. Rather than resemblance, however, here the Septuagint has iniquity. This is their iniquity. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah, the ephah representing a measure, the woman must represent the children of Israel, the bride of Christ. The nation of Israel depicted as the unfaithful wife of Yahweh and caught up in the balance of judgment. And he said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. The weight of lead which is very heavy and dense, seems to represent what wickedness describes and therefore represents the heaviness or gravity of the iniquity for which the woman is being judged. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens, then said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. And yet another allegory. These two women may be imagined to represent the two sisters, Israel and Judah, taking their mother, which is the nation of Israel as a people, to be judged in the land of Shinar, and to have a house built in the land of Shinar. The interpretation is not fanciful. In fact, the same analogy is found in Hosea chapter 2, where Israel and Judah are depicted as fornicating sisters. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, meaning you are not my people, and unto your sisters, Ruhama, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts. So we have sisters, plural, and we have a mother that is not my wife. Here we have two women pictured as taking this basket containing 
a woman who is evidently Israel off to the land of Shinar. It's basically the same allegory being used in Zechariah that was used in Hosea, just in a different manner. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in a day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, in the plain of Shinar perhaps, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms, for their mother has played the harlot, she, is, she that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. The analogy appears in Jeremiah, written over a hundred years later than Hosea, where among other similar statements, it says in Jeremiah chapter 3, And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel the one woman, the one sister, committed adultery, I had put her away, and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So here the two sisters are given wings, and carry the mother, Israel the bride, off to the plain of Shinar. So the woman represents the nation of the children of Israel in judgment. But what is of the utmost importance here is that the house of the woman being judged is built in a land of Shinar, which is an archaic name for the land of Babylon. This is evident in Daniel chapter 1 where it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. And he brought the vessels into the treasure of the house of his God. Here we have a further prophetic allegory, which corroborates the interpretation of what we have seen in Zechariah chapter 2, where it says... Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. Shinar here, and the phrase daughter of Babylon in the earlier chapter, represents the captivity and the condition of Israel in the time of their punishment, and represents the place where the house will be built. This agrees with a similar prophetic allegory found in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, we see a woman with twelve stars, which are the twelve tribes of Israel, who bears the Christ child, and who was taken into the wilderness for a time as a refuge from the dragon who would persecute her. Then the dragon pursues her. Then in Revelation chapter 17, John is taken back into the wilderness, evidently sometime later. And he sees the woman in a quite different state than what he may have expected, where we read in part, And there came one of the seven angels, which had these seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So he carried me away in the spirit 
into the wilderness where the woman representing Israel was left in Revelation chapter 12. And I saw a woman with a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. That same woman put off in fornication in Hosea and Jeremiah, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. We need a homo cause to fix this. This mystery Babylon is where the woman, Israel, the bride of Christ, would be judged. We also need a holocaust. This is an analogy which is also being made here of the woman in the ephah taken to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. So Zion, which is also representative of the people of Israel, was commanded in Zechariah chapter 2 to deliver thyself, for reason that they dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. And this is where the house of the woman in the ephah would be built, which are the seven churches of Christ and the true Israel of God, not in Jerusalem, but in the captivity. The second temple in Jerusalem was built only so that Christ could build his own body, both by reason of his birth and of the body of Christ that he would build when he reconciled his people Israel who were in the captivity through, through his, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just congested, through his gospel message. Now we shall commence with Zechariah chapter 6. And I turned, and lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. We see a similar vision in Zechariah chapter 1, where an angel with horses was standing in a valley. There the horses were speckled, red and white. And we interpreted the vision to mean that the wrath of God to come upon the nations surrounding Jerusalem would transpire in the imminent war between the Persians and the Greeks. Two great nations represented by the mountains. Here the mountains are of brass, and the horses are described a little differently. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot, grizzled and bay horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my lord? Now brass represents something very heavy and difficult to bear. For instance, in the promise of seven times punishment found in Leviticus chapter 26, the word of Yahweh says, And if ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron, and your earth as brass. Likewise, the stump of Babylon, which was to endure for seven times, prophesied in the book of Daniel, was bound with a band of iron and a band of brass. Perhaps the two mountains 
represent the beginning of captivity, where the children of Israel were taken off into literal Babylon and Assyria and the other nations that were at one time under the Babylonian Empire. But at the end of the captivity, they will have just as difficult a time before they're freed from mystery Babylon. Perhaps the two brass mountains refer to the two Babylons. Here, black horses appear with the red and the white. Rather than speckled horses, we see both, as we saw in Zechariah chapter 21, we see both grizzled and bay horses. The Septuagint has piebald for grizzled and ash-colored for bay. The Hebrew words evidently mean spotted and dappled, and it is difficult to distinguish a precise difference between the two, the word for spotted and the word for dappled, but they're grizzled and bay in the English. However, they are yoked together to one chariot, and separately yoked are each of the red, black, and white horses with their own chariots. Concerning the mountains, there is no interpretation supplied, but we cannot comment on the horses until we see the angel himself answer Zechariah's question in reference to the horses. And the angel answered me and said, These are the four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. We may imagine that these four spirits are used to represent the children of Israel, who were in the presence of God and who departed from him, and that the four types of horses represent their fate. But it seems more likely that the word for spirit simply be interpreted as wind here, as it was in both the Greek and the English of the Septuagint. The four winds represent the directions where the children of Israel had been scattered, and the nature of the horses may nevertheless represent their fate. The black horses, verse 6, the black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them. That's pretty important to our interpretation. And the grizzled or piebald in the Septuagint, which is either spotted or dappled. And the grizzled go forth toward the south country. And the bay or ash-colored in the Septuagint, went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. The reading of verse 7 in the Septuagint is less ominous, and seems to be more reasonable where it says, And the ash-colored went out, and looked to go and compass the earth. And he said, Go and compass the earth, and they compassed the earth. And in verse 8, Then he cried upon me, and spoke to me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. Now there is nothing to be said here of the red horses. The angel doesn't give an answer. Red seems to represent anger or wrath 
We can conjecture that the horses of the South are grizzled or spotted, and the lands of the South throughout the ancient world of the children of Israel in their captivity may certainly be viewed accordingly. However, the bay horses or dappled horses seem to have free rein to go where they choose. The black and white horses going towards the north have quieted, caused to rest, or perhaps soothed the spirit of the angel. The Septuagint has anger rather than spirit that it quieted the anger of the angel. Perhaps the anger being quieted, the red horses are no longer mentioned. These black and white horses seem to represent both the sin and the mercy for the children of Israel, who were sent to the north country in their captivity. Because of the way they are described, where first the black horses go north and then the white horses go after them, they may further stand for the first migrations of the sinful Israelites cast off in punishment, and then for the apostles who pursued them with the gospel of Christ, bearing mercy in his name, and the message of cleansing of their sin. So, the white horses followed the black horses, which were the Horses which represented their sin. That's by opinion. And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Take of them, of the captivity, even of Helday, of Tobiah, and of Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Now, the name Helday means worldly, Tobiah means Yahweh is good, and Jediah, Yahweh has known. However, the Septuagint reading does not have the names of these men. As Breton's translation reads, Take the things of the captivity from the chief men, and from the useful men of it, and from them that have understood. And thou shalt enter in that day into the house of Josias, the son of Sophonias, that came out of Babylon. And once again, the passage is wanting in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but that may not really be bear any effect on the interpretation, as we shall explain. This Zephaniah first. This Zephaniah, who is mentioned here, is most likely not the prophet Zephaniah of our Bibles, as he had prophesied at least 90 years before this time, and perhaps as many as 120 in the days of the good king Josiah of Judah. So this is a different Zephaniah. And the angel says, Then take silver and gold and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. Zephaniah means what Yahweh has treasured. The name of his son, Josiah, means whom Yahweh heals. So, symbolically, Yahweh heals the offspring of what he has treasured. It is therefore he whom Yahweh heals, or perhaps allegorically, those whom Yahweh heals, who anoints the high priest and sets the crown upon him. 
Josedek means Yahweh is righteous. And Joshua the priest is a type for Yahshua Christ, who is the son, or son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Joshua being a type for Yahshua Christ. This may be symbolic of the spread of the gospel, that the children of Israel who accept the gospel of Christ recognize that he is their legitimate king and high priest. They are whom Yahweh is healed. So they set the crown on the head of Christ when they recognize that he is king. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. Once again, Joshua the high priest is a type for Yahshua Christ, the branch grown out of the root of Jesse, as it says in Isaiah 111. Even he shall build the temple of Yahweh. I thought Zerubbabel was going to build the temple of Yahweh. So this evidently can't be the same temple. Even he shall build the temple of Yahweh, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Just as we witness at the end of Zechariah chapter 3, here we have another prophecy which can only apply to Yahshua Christ. And once again, the dual nature of Zechariah's visions is absolutely manifest. We have already seen here in chapter 4 that the angel assured the prophet that Zerubbabel himself would finish the building of the second temple, where it says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me unto you. So the temple of Yahweh described here cannot be the second temple which Zerubbabel is about to complete in four short years, according to Ezra chapter 6. The temple of Yahweh spoken of here may seem to be the one which Zerubbabel is building, but it is actually the body of Christ, which is the collective body of the children of Israel. The building of that temple began with the spread of the gospel of Christ into Europe and the north country, by which the spirit of the angel was quieted. The second temple is a temporary temple and fulfills the prophecy in its immediate application or near vision. The building of the body of Christ begins in Jerusalem, but the woman's house is built in Babylon or captivity in the land of the north. And the crown shall be to Helen, and to Tobiah, and to Jediah, and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple of Yahweh. Helen means dream, but that definition is only an interpretation by Strong from a figurative use of the corresponding verb, halam, which is to bind firmly. So it doesn't only mean dream, it could mean a binding. Hen means grace or favor. We may conjecture concerning the names and why they differ from the list given in verse 10. However, here and in verse 10, we lean towards the reading in the Septuagint as being the appropriate reading. 
The King James translators and other translators do the same thing. They often mistook descriptive terms for proper names and proper names for descriptive terms. In many places, the Septuagint did that same thing where the King James reading is the correct one. And for example, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 23, it says of the sons of Shelah, the bastard son of Judah, that these were the potters and those that dwelt among plants and hedges. There they dwelt with the king for his work. Now, it is not probable that these people actually dwelt among plants and hedges, especially since they dwelt with the king, right? But the words, the word for plant and the word for hedges, the words Netaim and Gadara were actually the names of certain towns, and that is how the passage should have been read. So in 1 Chronicles 4.23, we are providing one example of many that proper names, because Hebrew names have specific meanings, because they're derived from Hebrew words, can often be confused for words, and sometimes words can be confused for proper names. The Septuagint has Zechariah 6.14 to read, and the crown shall be to them that wait patiently, and to the useful men of the captivity, and to them that have known it, and for the favor of the son of Sophonius, or Zephaniah, and for a psalm in the house of the Lord. In the Septuagint reading, we see the meanings of the names, but without the references to Yahweh, which are found in this passage in the Masoretic text, which would only be a yod and a half. It would only be two letters attached to the word to create the name. So, Tobai has a meaning in Hebrew, which is useful, and Tobiah means useful of Yahweh. But if we detect that it's a name, we wouldn't translate it. We would just write Tobiah. That's an example. So here in the Septuagint reading of Zechariah 6.14, the phrase, wait patiently, is evidently from a translation of helem into Greek in the sense of binding. Useful is from the stem of Tobiah, which is good. Have known is from the stem of the word Jediah, which is to know, and the word for favor is from hence. So the Septuagint translators reading the Hebrew and writing in Greek didn't interpret these words as names. They applied their meanings to their translation, the meanings of the words, the meanings of the words behind the names. Similar differences in the interpretation of the original passage, which is not necessarily represented by the Masoretic text, also account for the differences between the Septuagint and the King James at verse 10 of this chapter, and in many other passages throughout each of these versions of the Bible. Here we also see that the Hebrew word for memorial differs from the Septuagint where it has psalm in its place in this particular verse. 
The grammar differences in this passage between the King James and the Septuagint are even more complex than what we have described here, but our present intent is only to illustrate the fact that because most Hebrew names are taken from words which have a common meaning, translators may sometimes errantly interpret as a name a word which was used in its common meaning. But likewise, many terms used as names are enriched by an understanding of the common meaning, as we, as, as we have also hoped, as we also hope to have elucidated here. Zechariah's vision concludes, his vision in this particular chapter, concludes in verse 15, And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of Yahweh. And ye shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass, if ye will diligently obey the voice of Yahweh your God. And the second temple of the Seventy Weeks Kingdom was built in four years by a list of people who had already returned with Zerubbabel, as it is explained by Nehemiah and Ezra. However, while that may be interpreted in the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, we have already seen language which clearly indicates the necessity for a transcendental or far-reaching interpretation. The fulfillment of this prophecy is in the far vision, and that is found when scattered Israel became reconciled in one body to Christ. Doing so, they came to Christ allegorically, and by that, they built the temple of Yahweh out of themselves. The same interpretation was offered by the Apostle Peter in chapter 2 of his first epistle, where he said, If so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, that stone with the seven eyes, that chief cornerstone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious, ye also as lively stones, or living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, Elect precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. So the scattered children of Israel, who are found in Yahshua Christ, are the true house of Yahweh God. And that house is the true subject of this prophecy in Zechariah. The second temple was merely the manner in which Yahweh had chosen to gather the materials for its foundation. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. Next week, next Friday night, Pastor Mark Downey. Tomorrow night, the Jews in England.